that is not enough, you know, for folks, especially with marginalized identities, to feel safe. And a question that I personally consider in assessing whether or not I feel safe with someone is to ask, you know, in what ways are you actively trying to change your sphere of orbit, whether that be professionally, socially, politically, to allow folks who have been historically disenfranchised the same opportunities you have to thrive. And for me, that question goes beyond mere respect, but it's required for me to feel safe with someone. And I think it also loops back to the original history of safe spaces as organizing spaces, right? As they serve a particular purpose, they have an intention behind them, which is intervening in oppression. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about creating safe spaces in relationships. What are safe spaces and how do we make sure that they're present in our relationships? Today, we're also going to be discussing the history of safe spaces on college campuses, their use in various social justice movements, as well as discussing some considerations for how you can take this and make your own intimate relationships safer as well. And to have this discussion, we are joined once again by one of our researchers, Dr. Kiana Nurse. Thanks for joining us, Kiana. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out because I was the one who initially presented this topic to the group, and I appreciate the fact that you sort of pushed back and said, there's so much further that we can go with what my initial idea and take on this topic was. And initially, I had just thought, you know, how is it that we create safe spaces for our partners? And how do we create a safe space in terms of being able to come to our partners when something is wrong, for instance, when there are challenges within the relationship? How do we make it okay and safe for our partners to be able to come to us in those moments, even though it might be vulnerable and it might be challenging and scary? But when you came back to me and discussed this, I, I could see that there were so many additional layers and things that I hadn't even thought about in terms of what this potential topic could be. So I'm really excited to get more into that today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a great topic. And certainly, like, when you talk about safe spaces, I think that initiates a reaction in people, right? Because oh, we definitely. see it so much in our, our cultural lexicon. Um, but also, you know, obviously safety looks like and feels like different things for everyone, depending on the identity that you occupy. But also, you know, it's a fraught topic for a lot of us because, again, you know, safety uh, as defined completely devoid of any harm or any risk is impossible. And so I think it's definitely worth it to sort of think about what safety looks like interpersonally, but also think about how that's always informed by the larger cultural context that we're all navigating. Yeah. And as we'll cover in this episode, definitely the macro level of this, the larger cultural context does get mirrored and vice versa in our personal relationships or intimate relationships as well. This has been bouncing around in my brain ever since a few weeks ago when we had Martha Kalpi on the show. And at one point she dropped whoever is the one who says, oh, I don't feel safe they get their way. And I think she was phrasing it in a context of not necessarily saying that that's good or that's bad, but that's just kind of how we have, you know, compassionate ethical relationships. And I've really, really been chewing on that one because I agree with that. And also, it's true that I think even in our intimate relationships, we cannot completely scrub out any risk or any stepped on toes, you know? And so like, it's definitely something that I've been chewing on of like how we rectify that tension and that push-pull. Yeah. So if safety is not, and this is kind of what we're getting into in this episode, if full-on safety of no risk of any harm at all is not realistic, that's not really possible, and I would argue not even really desirable, because um, mm. you know, then we would all just like live in little padded boxes with IVs feeding us or something like that, right? That the question then is, what do we aim for instead? 
right? What can we strive for? What other frameworks are there out there that allow us to create relationships where we have opportunities for connection and vulnerability and not feeling unsafe, right? It's like, maybe we can't be totally safe, but we don't want to feel unsafe either. So what, what does that look like? Right. That weird in-between space. So before we dive in, we need to jump in with the caveat that today we're not going to be talking about safety or safe spaces within the context of a relationship that is abusive. You know, so like once we've crossed that line into abusive behavior or abusive dynamics, this conversation is different. So we just have to clarify and make that distinct. And basically what we're going to go through today is we're going from a more zoomed out perspective into a more zoomed in perspective. So we're going to be starting out talking about definitions, the history of safe spaces, we're going to move on to talking about how we evaluate tolerable risk in relationships. And then we're going to close out talking about actions for creating relationships that do feel safe. Just a classic multi-amory episode. So let's jump into this from the beginning with the question of what are safe spaces? You know, what's the history of this term and what does this even mean? So it is important here to begin with that historical context, like Keanu was mentioning, because this term safe spaces is so much associated with uh, intersectionality and, you know, those sorts of challenges with people who've historically been made to feel very not safe. And then taking on top of that, the fact that everybody's experience of safety and their definition of what feeling safe even means is going to be different, sometimes very different, sometimes just a little bit different. But the important point is that safety is about how we experience the flow of power in society, whether that's big society or the society of a classroom or a company or potentially even an interpersonal relationship as we get to that later on in this episode. So to start out the conversation, when we talk about safety, it begs the question of safety from what? And how a person's identity and their position in society is going to influence and determine the answer to that question. I think immediately what comes to mind is safety from potential physical harm. And this can occur in a variety of ways in a variety of settings. But even in an interpersonal relationship, even if it's not a heterosexual relationship, but in some relationships, there may be a human who is larger than the other. And so that right away creates a potential power dynamic and the potential for one person to feel more or less safe than the other. Yeah. And I guess extrapolating out from there, of course, it's not just physical harm, right? We can extrapolate into emotional pain or being taken advantage of financially or sexually or things like that. There's a lot that falls under that umbrella, I think. Yeah. I mean, when I think of safety, I'm also thinking about my experience of being valued as well and being seen. And I think it also begs the secondary question, right, of safety to do what? So not just you know, safety insofar as avoiding something, but also safety as something that gives you capacity to do something else. And I wanted to sort of also start with a conversation around the history of safe spaces, because it reminds us that safe spaces have always been about centering marginalized voices and strategizing around how to end oppression. For example, during the 1960s and 70s, this is like a glorified period in terms of social justice movements in the United States. The term safe space emerged within those pockets of activity. So, for example, in LGBTQ plus uh, neighborhood based organizing efforts, safe spaces referred to places where folks could freely and openly exist within their respective identities with a lower risk of societal and legal repercussions. So in that way, safety was about obviously your physical safety, but it is also about the emotional safety of presenting yourself as you want it to be presented in community. Yeah, when we are grappling with those kind of two questions of like safety from what and safety to do what, that was one of the first things that floated to my mind is thinking about like safety around authenticity, you know, so it, it's something that's instead of again, just being defensive, it's almost like it's being additive in a certain way, right? It's creating, expanding space around being able to show up in that really authentic way without needing to worry about, you know, how you're presenting and who's who you're talking to and their judgments and, and things like that. I'm also thinking about in communities where people are discussing things that that feeling of safety from a more just even social within that group standpoint 
is something like if we're all debating something or sharing opinions, feeling like mine isn't going to be shot down because of who I am or because my opinion's mm-hmm. different from the group or because I don't agree with the teacher or the leader of this group or something like that, right? That it enables you to speak up and say those things without eventually learning you have to stay safe by not saying something, which is not actually safe in the sense we're talking about here. Yeah. And I think part of what's so interesting about these spaces is that when the space is defined around a shared identity and you create community around that, you begin to see how you invested in your safety because it relies on the safety of others as well. And so it's that interdependency. I think that's really tied to folks' identity within these spaces that makes for that capacity, right, to show up authentically. Absolutely. And you found sort of a historical overview that was written in 2017 by Diana Ali called Safe Spaces in Brave Spaces. And it was published in the National Association of Student Personnel Administrators Policy and Practice Series. That's a a mouthful for sure. It discusses how the term safe space is also intimately tied to social justice movement building on college and university campuses during that same 1960 and 1970 period. So there are some examples of that that include things like the Black Power movement, the anti-war movements that were occurring during that time, student-led protesting. Also, this occurred at Columbia and Cornell universities, most notably. So the term safe space became coupled with advocacy work overall, and these spaces were literal locations for organizing and for planning. This is a quote from that safe spaces and brave spaces source. And it says, the use of safe spaces was an integral part of the movement building process and created opportunities for intersectional communication and cross issue dialogue. This use of safe spaces also has continued throughout the 20th and the 21st century with different social justice movements like civil rights movements, HIV and AIDS activism, anti-apartheid movements, prison abolition, also Occupy Wall Street, things along that nature as well. So it is interesting, just tracking this history, how since it seems to be, this vocabulary seems to be often tied to pretty lefty groups and lefty organizations that for now it's clicking into place for me why usually the voices that are the loudest in bashing the term safe spaces often, I think, tend to be on the right, is my impression. Exactly. And I mean, the current debates around safe spaces are, you know, complicated on both sides of the spectrum, because on the one hand, you have the argument that safe spaces sort of detract from freedom of expression. They don't allow people to actually exchange ideas. They don't allow people to speak honestly and frankly, because and again, this is where the sort of like college campuses as breeding grounds for liberal snowflakes comes in, where Folks are not equipped to be able to deal with opinions that are drastically different from their own. But I also think that there are sort of interesting conversations, you know, within the luck about safe spaces as well, um, where sort of a commitment to safety as free from harm, full stop, can also shut down conversation. But also, you know, as a related matter, the way that safe spaces, because of its history, tied with sort of social justice leaning spaces, the universities can now co-opt that in a way to be like, oh, look, we're super liberal, even Mm -hmm. when the experience of some of those students on campuses beyond creating safe spaces is sort of not conducive to their well-being. So there's a lot of sort of complexity to it on both sides. Yeah, that's that's interesting you brought that up, Dedeker, because I felt for me, I've seen more criticism from left spaces about the term safe space in terms of, oh, well, this organization or this university has put such and such rules in place and they now call this a safe space, but that's not necessarily the experience of the people in it, like you were just saying, Kiana. So that's that's interesting, kind of depending who you're hearing complaints from, what the sort of flavor of those complaints might be. Something related to that actually just came up on our episode last week with Alyssa Gonzalez was talking about spaces where it's a safe space for one particular type of weirdos. That's kind of the context we were talking about, right? So let's say it's all the polyamorous weirdos have gotten together so we can all express more freely about that. But then someone who in that context is weird, like they're a furry or they're into some sort of kink that nobody else is, or they're 
a trad wife or like something is like their thing that is an outsider within this otherwise safe group for one identity, but not for another identity that they have. And so again, this idea that to call something a safe space is probably always going to be false for somebody in that Mm -hmm. situation at some point. And so it just that we shouldn't use it at all because it's not possible and it's kind of lying to say that any space is. Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks volumes about one, the multiplicity of all of our identities, um, but also the positionality of them, right? That one part of your identity can become more or less salient depending on the room that you're in. And so if you're in a room with all polyamorous people, as I have often been, as I'm sure you all have been, I I mean, uh-huh. I don't know that I like that anymore. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. You know, and, and it depends on the space, but sometimes I'm like, oh, this is a mostly like white polyamorous space. This is a, a mostly um, like hierarchical polyamorous space. So this is so all of these kind of like different ways that we inhabit our identities can show up even when we're trying to create safe spaces oriented around them. Um, But I think, you know, to bring it back to this conversation that's happening on campuses, again, you know, the idea of safety full stop is impossible, right, for students with marginalized identities, even when the explicit goal is to create a safe space for them, precisely the reasons that I was just mentioning. And so, you know, this author, I think, calls for creating brave spaces, and it's something that I've seen other people in higher education looking more closely at because of the impossibility of safe spaces. And so brave spaces, at least according to this author, there are five components to it, right? Yeah. So another quick caveat before we dive into this list of five, that there are merits to each of these, and there's also demerits to each of these that we're going to get into a little bit later. So yeah, we're not making any claim that this list is perfect and completely foolproof. No, absolutely not. And it's a starting point, right, for conversation. The first is controversy with civility, where varying opinions are accepted. And this is really about the ability to sort of offer opinions and thoughts without the fear that you'll be ostracized or criticized, humiliated, made fun of, that your ideas will be responded to in such a way that makes you shut down and makes you not want to engage further in conversation. See, Mm -hmm. that's hard because I feel like right out the gate, (laughs) that's such a hard one to actually accomplish in many spaces. And I think especially if we're talking about community spaces that are largely internet based, Mm -hmm. where it's just like really easy to, I think, fall into just like complete groupthink to a certain extent and to, I, I don't know, I guess get really polarized really quickly that I feel like even hitting that gray area of Yes, we can embrace controversy. We can embrace differences in opinion, but we'll do it in a civil way. Like I, I really just don't assist, associate civility with a lot of online internet spaces. So I feel like we're already stumbling out the gate in so many spaces on this this kind of first point of making a brave space. I feel like that's always such a like a dream situation to be in, where you're with people discussing things where it's okay to disagree, and that is so hard to find. But that does. I understand why that sounds great, right? I'd like to think academic spaces are better for that, but mm-hmm. because, yeah, you work more in academia, Kiana, you may disagree with that sentiment. So it's the the question slash comment crowd where it's not yeah. really a question. It's just right. this is why your research is trash. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 my goodness. So the second part of creating brave spaces is about owning intentions and impacts which is really about allowing folks the space to acknowledge and discuss the instances where a dialogue has affected the emotional well-being of someone else. And if controversy without civility is difficult, I think this one is even more so because it asks folks to sit in the harm that they may have caused and really Mm -hmm. grapple with the impact of it on another person, which is, you know, an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. Yeah, it definitely is. I appreciate that this includes both intentions and impacts. I feel like five years ago or so in a lot of these lefty spaces that were everyone was tossing out that like impact is the only thing that matters. Like your intentions are trash, right? We don't care what your intentions were. And I appreciate that this ropes in the fact that both things are at play at any given moment. The, the safe space question here is so interesting because it's on both sides, right? It's on the one hand, we're helping to make the space, I guess, brave instead of safe is what we're saying here. But, you know, by 
not attacking someone for disagreeing with their opinion. And yet at the same time, if you did, or if you do also feeling like it's a safe enough place for you to admit that and accept that and kind of sit in it, like you said, Kiana, is like not only vulnerable to accept that you've done that yourself, but also vulnerable in a society that really likes to paint with this black and white brush of, oh, you did a bad thing, therefore you are bad. And that is also another form of safety or, or unsafety, I guess. Yeah, I agree. And I think while this point doesn't quite go here, I think it opens up the potential for allowing people to take part in the repair process rather than being ostracized and sort of saying, well, you did a bad thing, so you're done. Yeah. The third sort of part of Brave Spaces is challenge by choice, where folks have an option to step in and out of challenging conversations. And this comes out of offering trigger warnings, content warnings, which I think empower people to make the decision around the capacity to which they can participate and engage in a conversation. I really appreciate that that is such a thing now, whereas even I feel five years ago, it it wasn't really done very much, especially in online spaces or places where you could potentially just come upon something that might be triggering or challenging for you, especially in our group, for instance, which again, it's not perfect, but I appreciate so much that people tend to put trigger warnings or what it is that they're looking for in our online groups. Yeah, the the challenge by choice also, I'm thinking about this in terms of in-person groups too, and not just online we talked before on several different episodes, but also just last week about any kind of um, public gathering, having quiet spaces as part of that. And I was thinking about that also in maybe a discussion group or a classroom setting or something where these ideas are getting exchanged, where there's a place to get away from it that's okay to go. It's not like, oh, you're walking out of class. It's like, no, you just need a moment and that's okay. This is on my mind too, because just last week I was at a conference it was just constantly loud and crowded all the time. And I was just thinking, gosh, if there was a quiet room, I would love that. So anyway, I'm thinking about a little bit, a little bit of a different angle on this, but I think related, right? That idea to, to escape the intensity. And it doesn't mean I'm never going to engage it, but just I might need a break or I might not be ready to do that right now. I love that. That's also something I discuss in my day job around sort of academic convenings, creating quiet areas for people because... It's not even the matter of challenge by choice in terms of the content of the conversation, but just stimulus generally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So the fourth part of Brave Spaces is about respect, uh, where, where folks are able to show respect for another person's basic personhood, right? So how capable are you of recognizing, you know, people's identities, doing things like sort of using the pronouns that they want used to describe themselves? pronouncing their name properly, really just seeing folks' different identities. Yeah. And imagine this all, I think that ties into the controversy with civility, right? The idea that like, if you have an opinion that differs from mine or even just slightly differs from mine, I don't immediately dehumanize you in my brain or in my behavior, in my speech toward you. And then the final one is, I think, a relatively simple one, but unfortunately in our climate, hard to come by, no attacks where you agree not to intentionally inflict harm on one another. And again, it's bringing up that notion of intentions and the importance yeah. of that. I think for me, when I'm able to better understand people's intentions, I can more easily extend grace. And that's not always the case, but it is important for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something we do at the beginning of our video discussion groups is always have some kind of little intro explaining that we're all here to take care of each other and have good intentions for each other. And so if someone does screw up or does say something wrong or hurt your feelings to know that it's not coming from a place of intention. And I do find that it does help avoid things escalating quickly, right? Cause you kind of start, like you said, from that place of being able to offer a little bit more grace to something, even if it is a little challenging or frustrating or upsetting or, or even triggering. So now let's dive into this a little bit more and look at some of the challenges with this and some of the ways that people have tried to address this, some of the challenges with that and how we might be able to apply it before we get into how we can then take these things even closer to home and apply them in our own intimate relationships. But first, we're going to take a quick break to talk about how you can support this show. If you value this content, if you benefit from this, if it's helped you in any way, 
it really helps us to keep this going and to keep this information out there in the world for free for everybody who wants to listen to it by taking a moment to check out our sponsors, contributing to the show and spreading the word about it. It really does make a difference and we appreciate you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back. All right. So now we're getting into these concepts of safety and risk and brave spaces. And let's let's get into the nitty gritty now of how this can go wrong and maybe what we can do about it. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, the the sort of five elements of brave spaces, they are all well and good. But the is this trademarked yet? Don't weaponize this shit. <laughs> yeah, it should, we should I, work on that for yeah, sure. You're right. right. <laughs> yeah. And so it's certainly an interesting framework to apply to interpersonal relationships. But I do think that these suggestions require a lot of unpacking because, you know, without care, without intention, those very same suggestions could create unsafe relationships. In this context, unsafe being relationships that have more risk of emotional harm than folks have consented to. The first one that we want to unpack is that controversy with civility. And that's where, again, where varying opinions are hopefully accepted and you come at those opinions in a kind way, in a civil manner, as it were. Uh, but, you know, civility can really be weaponized, like you just said, and it can be functioning sort of as a form of dismissal or minimizing or even potentially gaslighting valid reactions, things along those lines. Imagine tone policing would fall under this carrot, this category. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, whenever I uh, see the word civil, civil discourse, I immediately I kind of get hives because it has always been a way to silence women, silence black people, right? Because it implies a certain way of talking with each other that is the accepted way. And if you do anything outside of that, then you're suddenly uncivilized, right? And all of the sort of implications of that racialized term. Yeah, your next point here about how important it is to be able to express emotions in a healthy way. And that doesn't necessarily mean anger, but that emotions can take a variety of shapes. And this really resonates for me because I've definitely heard from people, oh, your your tone is maybe a little too loud or your voice is, you know, a certain way or not. And I think it's challenging because to me and to my inner life, I may feel like I'm not getting overly expressive in terms of the way in which I'm I'm expressing my emotions. But then to another person, they may feel like, oh, you're really acting out of control even. And it's that challenge of, you know, where is that line? Where is that barrier between 
feeling as though I want to be able to express myself in this moment and I may be upset and I may be angry or I may just really want to tell you that I feel a certain way in a specific way. And I don't want, obviously, that to be harmful to another person, but where is that line between the two? And I think that becomes so uh, disjointed at times and blurry. So I'm not exactly always sure how to parse that out and how to make sure that I'm not harming another person, but that I'm also being true to myself. Yeah. And I think that, you know, identity is so important here because some of us have more space to express emotions, even in unhealthy ways than others. I struggle a lot with that as well, Emily, because I think women, you know, the whole history of like hysterical women and how that sort of shuts off space for you to even just emote. And then, you know, in my case, the the archetype of the angry black women. I have a a lot of like trouble with expressing anger for that reason. And so where is that line between sort of being able to just emote as humans do versus not harming people who have to be on the receiving end of that, right? So where's the line between raising your voice because you're angry versus like yelling and berating someone because you're angry? Yeah, that can be so subtle, but it also makes me think of and I've heard this experience from other women as well, that I've had a handful of experiences where like certain men that I've dated, like the minute that a woman starts crying, then then everything is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, whether it's tears of anger or tears of sadness or frustration or whatever. You're crying at me. Yeah, which is so funny. And it's obviously, it's, it's not every person that I've dated, but like, again, it's like the context and what we take certain expressions of emotion to mean, who takes certain expressions of emotion to be appropriate versus inappropriate. And then that also connects me to something that we've talked about a lot on this show, which is switch tracking, right? So the idea that you come to me, whether this is in a classroom or this is in our personal intimate relationship and say something about how you're feeling or make a request or you state a boundary and I switch track by being like, well, you shouldn't have asked it in that way, or you came to me crying and that really upset me, you know, or you weren't being civil enough with the way that you asked me that it's completely, literally jumping tracks, right? So now we've completely derailed from what the original content of the conversation was, right? And so that that seems like a very easy way that even this pillar of creating a brave space could be weaponized. Yeah, this reminds me of a book called Civility, actually. I'm not sure if any of you have come across that or read it. Uh, It's by Stephen L. Carter. Uh, It's called Civility, Manners, Morals, and the Etiquette of Democracy. And this was a book that was assigned to us before entering freshman year at Oberlin College when I started going to school there. And it's a book all about civility written by a very conservative Republican uh, black law professor. And it was interesting reading this going into a school that's known for being very, very liberal and how much when we showed up, first of all, how few people actually read it. Is that, re- is that really surprising, Jay? It's, like, that's really? okay. That part's not surprising. You're right. <laughs> that part's not surprising. Really, none of it, none of it is surprising to me now. But at the time, I was a little surprised by how dismissive so many people were of all the stuff that he said in the book because they're sort of like, oh, this is a conservative. I'm not going to listen to them. And it's actually a book that I still, to this day, I disagree with a lot of what he said in it, but there's parts of it where I'm like, that's a really great point. And that's something to think about. But anyway, so when we were talking about our connotations with the word civility, I do think that in his book, he both showed some ways that we miss out on civility, but also he also kind of weaponized civility in some ways to sort of quash people who might disagree with him. So it's interesting seeing that on on both sides there too. I want to move on to talking about the challenge by choice part of this. So the idea that anyone at any time has the option to step in or to step out of a challenging conversation or a challenging context. And again, we talked about all the positive ways that that can operate, but the negative ways that this can potentially show up could be in making it so like you can just withdraw from conflict and from repair anytime, right? You know, so I feel a little bit tense about the fact that you're, you know, making a request from me that I don't like. And so I can just be like, no, I don't feel safe. And so I'm not going to continue this conversation, which could be 
veiled withdrawal. It could be veiled stonewalling to a certain extent. You know, that in itself can then trigger feelings of total abandonment in your partner or the other person who came to speak to you or came to make a request of you. And it does speak to the fact that it's important for us to also be able to receive somebody else's communication or somebody else's emotions, right? You know, so when we talk about holding space for someone to share something vulnerable or share something difficult with us, and this is another concept that I think we touch on a lot in this show about are you someone where it's safe to be honest or safe to approach with these things? And if you're operating under this framework that, well, I should be feeling safe at all times and never feel any kind of risk or ever feel any sense that I've done something wrong. And so I'm okay to just completely withdraw myself from any kind of challenge or any kind of pushback or any kind of accountability. We talk a lot about this in terms of the framework of HALT and how it is important to be able to say, no, I'm going to stop this conversation and I'm going to potentially come back to it. But I think that part of being able to re-enter a conversation when you feel maybe more safe or maybe just calm down or you're going to hopefully help the other person also feel more safe in that moment. I think that's the really important part in terms of that framework. And that's interesting here because I agree that it's important to be able to say no, but ideally you do come back to it at some point if both parties are willing, I guess. Yeah, it's a really sticky one um, because I also very much appreciate that space to step away if I need to. And I love when people do that for themselves and they take care of themselves in that way. One of the things that I've noticed that's been helpful for me is when the withdrawing around the same sort of issue and true withdrawing as in I am leaving and I'm actually not going to do any work around trying to have this conversation. Mm, When that repeatedly happens, then I can discern that that's what's happening and not someone genuinely needing to take space for themselves because the, the topic is too challenging. And that brings up a great point that I think hits on a lot of this. And that's why we always say don't weaponize this shit about basically everything is that I think people will try to come up with rules of, okay, well, if we have this thing in place or we have this rule for how we talk in this group or in our relationship that somehow we can just come up with the right rule that will solve the problem. But like what you were just pointing out there, basically what what everyone has said now in some form or another is that sure, that's all well and good if it's done with the right intention and and for the right reasons, but it could also easily be used as a way, maybe not even trying to be hurtful, but of a way to not engage with something that you really should be, that is feedback you do need to hear or something you do need to process for this relationship. And so all of this really, really relies on not just trying to find some rule that makes this work, but evaluating those situations and those relationships and deciding when something's not safe for you, I guess, or not safe enough, I could say. So I want to move to the respect sort of item, right, of showing respect for another person's basic personhood, because this is probably the one to me that seems the most like a Trojan horse in a way, Mm -hmm. because it's so vague. And also, of course, like, who would disagree that you shouldn't show respect? And the reason why it stands out to me is because I I question, well, what does that term mean, right? Does it function as a synonym for mere tolerance? Because that's a little bit what it feels like. And that is not enough, you know, for folks, especially with marginalized identities, to feel safe. And a question that I personally consider in assessing whether or not I feel safe with someone is to ask, you know, in what ways are you actively trying to change your sphere of orbit, whether that be professionally, socially, politically, to allow folks who have been historically disenfranchised the same opportunities you have to thrive? And for me, that question goes beyond mere respect, but it's required for me to feel safe with someone. And I think it also loops back to the original history of safe spaces as organizing spaces, right? As they serve a particular purpose, they have an intention behind them which is intervening in oppression. And so I I try to phrase it that way so that there's a lot of different points of where you could come in and do some work because 
if I'm talking to someone and trying to form a relationship with them, I don't expect them to have an answer of how to solve racism. But I do want to know that they have some sense of or are doing some things within their sphere of influence to make the world, to open up more possibilities within the world for someone like me. And how would you define and distinguish mere tolerance? Colorblindness. In a sure, way. sure, mm. sure, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. If I had to, the, the too long didn't read version of it, it's like, oh, you just, ha- <laughs> you happen to be a black woman. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, part of what this is about too is that the recognition that there's no universal personhood, right? That doesn't exist. And some folks are still denied full basic personhood if we're thinking about that in legal terms, if we're thinking about that in cultural terms. And so, just always the push to really interrogate, well, like, who are we talking about here and how are people's experiences of how they have to navigate the world drastically different? And how is that showing up in how I interact with them and how they interact with me? And then the last one of the five was the no attacks, right? And this is, again, going back to this idea of intention, right? It's hard to define that as a rule because something that might seem perfectly civil could actually be a quite vicious attack, right? And we kind of mentioned that before. Uh, But that intention's a really important part of it. And I would say that this one actually loops back to number two that we haven't really gotten back to, which is being able to own your intention and your impact if you have caused harm to someone else. So that idea of no attacks, but also if something happens that even wasn't intentionally attack, but was hurtful to someone or was out of line, then being able to own up to that and feel safe enough to own up to that is, I think, a, a big challenge. I think that's that's one of the hardest ones. They're all hard. All, all five of them are hard. It's all hard because, again, to, to zoom into looking at personal relationships, it makes me think of how, you know, for instance, in a toxic relationship dynamic or an abusive relationship dynamic, doing something like going to couples therapy is not recommended because that same dynamic can still be perpetuated just quieter and with better, more gentler therapy language, right? So you can still fall under the jurisdiction of this isn't an attack, right? Even though in intention and in impact, it completely is an attack. It was just done with very, very nice, very civil words. And again, that's a really vague terminology, just no attacks. It's like an attack to one person may be very different than an attack to another person. And I guess questioning that, all of this reminds me of just, you know, the intersectionality between what sort of history a person has, who they are on a variety of levels, and what that's going to bring to the conversation in terms of whether or not they feel safe in a situation or not, even though the intent is there and is good. It's not necessarily looking at all of those intricacies of what the person may be bringing to the situation. So that's really challenging. And I think, yet again, another reason why my initial idea of let's just talk about safe spaces, like there's so many more layers to it than even what I initially thought. So this discussion, as we've been talking about the history of safe spaces, the pros and cons of brave spaces... You know, it changes the conversation from how do we create safe and our brave spaces for our partners to how do we mitigate risk enough to create opportunity for connection and vulnerability. And then the second thing that I think is incredibly important is how do we do that in a way that's attuned to the cultural and historical realities of power and oppression? Because again, everyone's experience and idea of what they need to feel safe is always going to be tied to how they have to navigate the world. And so it is such important work in relationship to be figuring out how much risk, how much emotional risk can I tolerate here? What is my threshold for like when something not only ticks out of my comfort zone, but into this zone of risk, but then when does something tick from the zone of risk into this is like the danger zone where it's too risky, right? These are conversations that I'm having a lot with my clients. And this is really relevant for a lot of the work that I do since I work with a lot of people somatically is that sometimes feeling emotional risk and also feeling into emotional safety, we really do need to be attuned to what's going on in our bodies and in our nervous systems because you can be telling yourself all day long, 
that your relationship is safe or that it's safe to have this particular conversation or it's safe to make this request, but everything from the neck down can be telling you no can do, right? You know, your heart can still be beating and your palms can still be sweaty. And that can be based on stuff that's happened in the history of your relationship, or it can be based on literally what body you are in, right? And whether or not the body that you happen to be in has had an overvalued membership in society or an undervalued mm. membership in society. And that also intersects with who you happen to be in a relationship with and what body they happen to be in. So, you know, Stan Tatkin, I believe, gosh, what was it, 200 years ago, Emily, that we did that episode yeah. about Stan Tatkin's book about <laughs> attachment? Yes. He talks a lot about about this stuff as well, about finding emotional safety and attachment safety and that being a foundation for being able to have a satisfying and a loving relationship. This book by Stan Tadkin, it was called Wired for Love, and we discussed it on episode 177 and also on 291 a long time ago. Deep in the multi-emory archive. I love yes, that. Exactly. Yeah. Goodness. <laughs> Goodness. So Tatkin is a great resource to look to for more information about this. This is also relevant to the work of Stephen Porges, who has done a lot of work that a lot of like somatic therapy is based on about the autonomic nervous system and how that goes into play in relationships. Um, and then Porges as well, you know, so Porges is most famously known for developing the polyvagal theory that talks about how, you know, our autonomic nervous system is what creates our embodied internalized sense of safety and trust and intimacy and about how our brains have evolved to be constantly scanning for threat. Our brains and nervous systems can pick up very, very, very subtle cues of threat, right? We can especially be trained to pick up how quickly or slowly a partner is responding to us or whether their face is doing that tick thing that it does when they're frustrated or noticing a little bit about how the prosody in their voice is rising as they're getting more activated. Like we do pick up on those things and then that gets internalized, you know, via process that Porges calls neuroception, essentially, which is our brain checking in with our body to assess those feelings of risk and safety. And so when we get the message that things are actually safe, that's when our ventral vagal complex which is our social engagement system, it lets us actually listen to somebody, you know, listen to somebody compassionately to connect with them, to make eye contact with them, also to be able to be creative, to problem solve, to be able to share vulnerably. And then, of course, the opposite is also true that when our brains and our nervous systems are picking up these cues of threat, even if it's from a partner that we can cognitively know is someone who loves us and maybe isn't dangerous... But still, that survival mechanism can kick in, which means we're more likely to shunt down. It's a lot harder to listen. It's harder to empathize. It's harder to stay close to that person physically and emotionally. This is why I think it is really important to have time to emotionally regulate if you are in the middle of conflict. However, it is, again, that challenge because you do want to be able to say and express yourself in ways that feel good and okay and worthy of the time and respect of the other person. But I do think that ideally, if you can get to a place of gentleness and understanding and, you know, emotional regulation, then that's really good in terms of safety. And that's easier said than done, I think, in a lot of instances. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how our brains can pick up signs of of threat and how that obviously will look different for everybody, right? So now I'm thinking about this and I'm like, oh, that's why I get really nervous whenever my partner starts with, so I have to talk to you about something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. right. Or you get the text that's like, we need to talk. And I'm like, like about what? <laughs> oh, there's exactly. a particular, there's a particular sigh that Jace does. Oh boy. Oh no. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's when you do, when you do the poof sigh, when you do the, oh, the poof, that, yeah. oh gosh, that, yeah. and it doesn't even, it's not even anything to do with me, right? It's not like it comes out in conflict. It's just like, you're stressed by something and you do the poof and I'm just like, <laughs> like my, I feel Goodness. all those little muscles in my back just kind of go rink. That's the right. power of mirror neurons. I know. <laughs> such a, especially with people that we're attuned to where yes. like our, our mirror neurons in our body are actually firing in sympathy, essentially doing the same thing as someone else, even if we're not experiencing what they're experiencing. Like it's why watching 
someone eat or watching someone get punched in a movie. There's like a part of you that's, that's actually physically reacting to it. It's super fascinating stuff, but that's, yeah, that, that response that we have to someone's nervousness, right? So this is something we talked about way back on episodes about uh, coming out or talking to your partner about opening up your relationship or something of if you're regulated and calm, it's going to be easier for them to hear you as well. Anyway, we're getting off track a little bit, but yeah, there's like, we're all so attuned to each other is really fascinating as humans. Yeah. And you know, we're sort of paying attention and you can probably pick up on it a little easier with folks that you do know, cause you know, their habits. But again, I think that the way that your brain sort of scans for threats is where sort of self-awareness and coupled with cultural awareness is key here, because I could step into a room full of people that I don't know. And my brain, because of like Dedeker said, the body that I occupy, like can feel that this is not the safest space for me. And I think that that's something important for us all to consider insofar as, you know, you can try very hard to make someone feel safe, but you also have to understand how the sort of cultural reality of your identity impacts them, even if you love them, even if you're in a relationship with them, even if you've known them for a long, long time, that is still always going to be present in the space, right? I think there's also something really valuable in being on the other side of that too, of kind of being aware of how your physical presence can affect your partner or even just your friends or, or coworkers or whatever based on their identity and your own, right? And it's a very complex thing. So it's not like ah, just do this math equation and you'll know exactly what the effect will be, but more just being aware of it and trying to learn as you go and see what those reactions are. Something that um, I think we've talked about before on this show is, you know, kind of like Emily mentioned way back at the beginning, right, about physical safety and that if you're someone who is a lot larger than other people, if you have a big reaction to something, that could be really scary to someone else who's less of a large person, right? Less of a large human than you are, even if they have no past evidence that you would be violent to them or that you would be threatening to them or anything like that. But that doesn't mean that there's not that impact and that their body isn't going, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, right? This is a scary thing. I should, I should be worried here. And so I think you know, I just mentioned size as one example. I'm thinking of one particular example of two friends that I saw talking at a party years ago. And he was like a real big guy, like way huge compared to me too. Right. And, you know, she was much smaller and he kind of jokingly, you know, was like, Oh, I think this thing, you know, whatever they were joking about. And I watched her physically like recoil and kind of be freaked out and feel uncomfortable. And I was like, I need to go in here and break this up. And, you know, talk to both of them and try to resolve this, but seeing how clearly in a different situation, what he did would have been totally fine. But in that context, it wasn't. So I think there's also a lot of value in becoming aware of these things to try to be that safer person to be around and come to, even if it's like, well, I'm safe, I'm not going to do anything to anyone, but it goes beyond that. There's also that effect very subtly in how people feel around you because of whatever their history, your history, all of that. So as we think about what this looks like in practice and how we can actually do the work of creating safer relationships or rather safe enough, safe enough relationships, safe interactions, there are a few action items that we want to get into around what this looks like in practice, because it's really about, again, thinking through the capacities you've built in your relationships to hold the inevitability of harm. Yeah, and I like that you point that out, that we do need to accept the inevitability of this, right? Even if it's literally just trotting on someone's toes emotionally or physically, that we bump up against each other. That's what we do as human beings. And so we do need to have pathways to repair So the first potential action item is something that we've talked about a lot on this show, and that's practicing nonviolent communication. You can do this at all times, but especially in moments of conflict. And we actually wrote about this in our book, which is coming out. So come look that section up in our book. But it's something that you can think about in terms of nonviolent communication. 
are things like self-empathy and then also receiving empathically. So nonviolent communication suggests that however the other person expresses themselves, we're hopefully going to be focusing on listening for the underlying observations, feelings, needs, and requests. And some of this also comes out in like I statements, stuff like that. But essentially talking about things in terms of what is it that occurred during the specific situation? How did I feel when that thing was occurring? What do I need from you in the future? And offering a potential request of the individual. So it kind of goes in that trajectory when you're talking about nonviolent communication. When you're doing those specific things, ideally you're going to be expressing yourself in an honest fashion, but it's occurring in a way that is not violent towards the other person, but still hopefully holding space for you to be honest and communicative about the thing that happened and that was potentially harmful to you. Yeah, nonviolent communication has been such a great framework for me in all instances, personally, professionally, friends, families, coworkers, and especially with the honesty bit, because I used to be one of those people that said, well, I'm just blunt and not really taking accountability for the fact that I was kind of mean. And so I love the focus on sort of the observation, feeling, need and request, because it's a clear sort of definition around what that honesty looks like. But also it focuses on you rather than sort of just making judgments on other people. And oftentimes, again, when I'm not feeling, you know, the safest with someone, it is because I feel that they are making judgments around what I think, what I feel. And I'm like, well, you can possibly know that. And so it prompts this defensiveness that I think nonviolent communication helps you circumvent. I think it's also a good example of how having some kind of framework can help. Even if, you know, earlier I was just talking shit about rules and being like, oh, we try to come up with, oh, if I just do X, Y, and Z, then I won't be causing harm or then this space will be safe or whatever and that that's bullshit. But on the other hand, the reason why these frameworks like nonviolent communication and maybe brave spaces are important is it does at least give us something to remember and to think about and to strive toward. So I think that's that's such a good example of like how that shows up for you practically. Uh, the second one here is about embracing accountability and impact. So we're going to come back to this one again. So a few parts to this. One is being an active participant in the repair process if you're the one who has caused harm rather than allowing that guilt or shame, or or even fear that you feel to prevent you from actively engaging in that and, and trying to repair. And we talked about this earlier in the context of groups and things like that. And I think that's a, a challenging place, depending on the community, because there can be that feeling of, oh, if anyone admits they did something wrong, that gives us the excuse to ostracize them. And, and you know, oh, they admitted guilt. Aha, they're guilty. Throw them in jail, kind of a thing, that very punitive Western way of thinking about justice. But if you think about this in like your interpersonal relationships and your friends and things like that, it is very different. And this is one I know came up a lot with Dedeker and I early on in our relationship. I think Dedeker, you may, could tell it better, but that you weren't used to someone admitting fault ever. Oh that, like, yeah, that wasn't really how threw it was me done off. in your family. <laughs> really threw me off for sure. And that's interesting you bring that up because yeah, this makes me think about not just having the ability to say that you're sorry in a relationship, but I think also the ability to say that you're sorry without just collapsing into that, right? Because mm. I think we see something maladaptive happening on both extremes of the spectrum. There's both the extreme of someone who can never embrace accountability, who can never acknowledge impact, who can never say that they're sorry. And then on the other side, you know, the other extreme of if that's like the first card you whip out as soon as there's any kind of critique or pushback is just like the I'm sorry, whether it's guilty some many times <laughs> all the time. Right. Well, whether it has meaning behind it or whether it's just like a throwaway, I'm sorry, just to try to get the heat off your back. Right. It's like there's there's something about this middle path in between those two extremes that needs to be in place in order for like actual accountability to take place. I was just going to say that, you know, I, I myself have been in dynamics where someone does something wrong and the apology then becomes about me having to support them because they feel bad. 
rather oh than oh boy. Like, oh boy. receiving the oh apology. Boy. <laughs> yeah, up in there. So, oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just exhausting. And then you still scratch your head at the end of it being like, I don't think I actually got the apology that I was looking for. And so that accountability, embracing it, and I think being an active participant in the repair process is so important to avoid that. Right. And and I think, yeah, part of that then is being being honest about the extent that you might need to figure that out on your own. Like if you were the one who who realized, oh shit, I did something. I think especially if it's become a pattern, right? If this is something that's happened more than once or realizing, okay, this is a repeated pattern of what kind of work do I need to do and kind of being willing to take that time and do it. And I think that step is hard because sometimes it's just, oh, I, I admit I was wrong. I said I was sorry. It's all better, right? And maybe it is if it was just a one-time little thing, but maybe it's not if this is part of a larger pattern, in which case actually doing your work separate from your partner and not making them do that work for you is a really important step in that. And I'd say on the other side is as the partner who feels like you need that apology and your partner needs to do that work, I guess one, being willing to let them do it or realize that you're not ever going to forgive them or feel okay and get out and and stop <laughs> stop trying to force this thing to feel safe somehow by like punishing them enough or by i don't know just hoping they'll be a different person or you'll be a different person or something like that that just to realize that you either need to give them the time and opportunity to fix that or let's just not and and move on and that might be better for both of you so the third action item on this list is practicing critical humility. And this is a term that I learned recently from English scholar Kathleen Fitzpatrick in her book, Generous Thinking. Uh, it's a great book. I'm not going to bore you into the specifics of it, but it's just about how people are mean in academia and we need to fix it. But the term is really sort of embraces the possibility that you might, in fact, be wildly wrong about something or ill-informed about something but still remaining open to that and moving in the direction towards learning, right? And for me, I think this is so important when you're in relationships with people, especially people of different backgrounds than your own, because if someone is actually doing the work of sharing their reality or sharing their lived experience with you, you shouldn't respond to that as if it were somehow like a proof of concept of this larger thing that you don't get, right? You should actually mm. acknowledge that, oh, wow, I didn't know that that was the case, you know, believe that experience, validate that experience, you know, thank them for exposing you to something that you didn't see and then take your own initiative to to learn more. I often feel the least safe with people when I have to, one, just explain my existence, but then the questioning of that becomes a questioning of how I think about things as well. Well, so kind of related to all of these things, you know, number four is rituals. We love talking about rituals. Go to Multiamory episode 409. We did a whole episode just about rituals. But as you'll find in that episode, we talk about how rituals can really serve to soothe anxiety and again, create those cues that your brain and nervous system are going to pick up on as being safe, right? So this is why we recommend to people, like if you get anxious before an uncomfortable conversation, if you get anxious before a radar or before a check-in, you know, you can do something like build a nest for yourself and your partner, literally put your body in a context that tends to make it feel safe and secure and comfortable, right? You know, get into your PJs and cover yourself in pillows if that's what it takes. And that may not be the magic bullet that makes talking to your partner completely unscary. Again, we're not completely eliminating the risk and the vulnerability, but it's still supporting your body and your nervous system to be able to open up a little bit more, right? And there are so many things that you can do in your relationship to support this, whether it's something as simple as, I don't know, I feel like on a day-to-day -day basis, like I'll go through moments where I don't necessarily feel like responding to a partner's bid, right? If they're like, oh, watch this YouTube video or if Jace is like, let me talk to you about AI for 15 minutes or things like that. And if I'm in the middle of like, I don't know, I'm trying to like do the dishes or, or work on something or whatever. But if I find a way to respond to that bid, that's not adding to a sense of, oh, it's not safe for you to come to me. You know, like I'm, I'm not responding to it in a way that's actually pushing against. It's just like these little drops in a bucket that eventually fill up the bucket, right? That sense and you develop that sense of embodied safety and almost like that reserve 
that the relationship is safe and it is okay for the two of you to turn to each other. So I think this is really important to think about, especially if you're in a relationship where you are more prone to feeling anxious about connecting with a partner is that the two of you can strategize on like, what are the ways that we can incorporate rituals in order to feel safer, including little informal rituals, like the way that the two of you greet each other when you're reuniting at the end of the day, or the way that the two of you go to sleep at night, or if you don't cohabit, the way that you leave each other's spaces or come back into each other's spaces. Like there's so many opportunities for sprinkling in these little rituals that can create that feedback loop of safety. Wow. I think we learned a ton today. Thank you so much, everyone. And Kiana, thank you for bringing your expertise and your perspective to this really important topic. Because again, I think this is such a better version of my initial idea on this topic. So we really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And again, always being open to collaborate on how we can deepen the discussion for these topics. This was a really interesting sort of way to think about safe spaces within my regular realm, but then also to bring it into interpersonal relationships as well. Absolutely. And we want to hear from all of you out there. We're going to post a question on our Instagram stories this week. And that question is, what makes a relationship safe to you? So please let us know what you think about that. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is in the episode discussion channel on our Discord server, or you can post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, me, Emily Matlack. This episode was researched and guest starred by Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenewark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 